Well, please take out your Bibles or turn them on, as it were. I, uh, the, the, the text that I'll be preaching from is actually not going to be on the screen behind me, so you will need a Bible of some kind to keep up. Now, the Bibles in front of you are New King James Version. I'm sorry for the confusion. I will be preaching from the ESV. That's where I prepare my sermons. That's kind of my home base uh, translation. Uh, and so we do hope, Lord willing, uh, in the next few months to be moving toward a time where we can order ESVs for, uh, for the pews so that you can follow along and, and not get thrown off by any kind of words that are different or, or, or things like that. But uh, Psalm 5 is where we're going. We have been in a series on the Psalms, uh, reached Psalm 1 and 2, and now we jump to 5 because we're going we're gonna to be doing a little bit of jumping around, not going to be hitting every Psalm. My goal is to give you a, a broad uh, uh, sense of scope, as it were, for the Psalter. Uh, we won't be singing this one this uh, Sunday. I, I, I didn't prepare a version for us to sing this time, uh, but we, we, I will try to make that an ordinary part of our practice to try and get a version that we can sing together. But Psalm 5 is, is a very important one. Uh, as you'll hear me talk about later, I think uh, Psalm 5 has been one of the most helpful psalms in moments of great difficulty for uh, women who have walked through uh, very abusive situations. So in, just in the course of, of pastoral counseling, if I'm, if I'm ever dealing with someone who has had that in their past and it continues, of course, to be a burden and a struggle to them, many, many, uh, many wounded people, deeply wounded people have found steadiness and hope in Psalm 5. And so I'm looking forward to preaching it to you uh, this morning. I want to begin by telling you that Psalm 5 is in the category of Psalm 1. It lays out uh, righteousness and wickedness, just like we saw in Psalm 1. And what I want to show you is actually really cool. Now, there's not much you can do with this information except to say, hey, Pastor Brian, that's really cool. So I'm going to show it to you before we begin, okay? So if you'll go to Psalm 5, and I'm going to read it. Oh, you, you do have it. Wonderful. Okay. Well, at least for this part. Yeah. So, give ear to my words, O Lord. So this is a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against You. But let all who take refuge in You rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread Your protection over them. That those who love Your name, may exalt in You. For You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Alright? This is the Word of the Lord. And so again we say, 
Thanks be to God. What I want to show you just to start off with is something in Greek and in Hebrew called a chiasm. Now, this might sound complicated at first, but I promise you, even the little ones will be able to get this. A chiasm is a structure that appears in some biblical texts. Um, and there you can find sometimes debates over whether or not it's existing in this text or that text. But basically the way it works is you start on the outsides, both the end of the text and the beginning, and those are going to have similarities. And then the next level coming in, one layer inward, uh, those are going to ha- uh, have similarities. And then you're going to hit a middle. Why does this matter? Because if you have a chiastic structure, the middle is the most important bit. And it really helps with interpretation. All right, so so let's let's see if uh, uh, let's let's see if this bears out. So the, so we start out. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. And then, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Here's David asking something of God. Jump to the end of the psalm, verse eleven. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy. Verse twelve. You bless the righteous. You Cover him with favors with a shield. So we start, David starts by asking God for something, ends by receiving something from God. Okay, then we work the next layer in. Verses 4 to 6. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And so on. And then we go to verses 9 and 10. For there is no truth in their mouths. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. Both parts talking about wickedness of mankind. Right? So the, the fate of the wicked on, on both sides, right in the middle, verses 7 and 8. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. This is meant to literally be the centerpiece of the psalm. Both the central part of it and the most important part of it. The big point of the whole thing. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Why does this matter? Well, because we tend to think when, when, we, when we exegete and when, we pre, when preachers preach a text, it's like you start at the beginning and you end at the end. And that's still what I'm going to do. What I'm actually saying, though, in this structure, you could preach to the middle and it would still work. In fact, that's literally how a lot of these worked. And so the central meaning then, the most important bit, is verses 7 and 8. So let's examine then the, the outside parts which deal with asking for something from God, and then receiving something from God. And, and David's hope remains in the love of his God. So he starts with the God who hears. There's a plea and there's an assurance. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. Those are three requests there. Three pleas to God. Give ear. Consider. Give attention. Whatever circumstance David is in, He's longing for God to hear and answer him. And so, what I would expect in a prayer like that, sort of if, I mean, maybe the best way to put it is, if I were praying it without any help from the Psalms, I would say, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, Amen. Hope He heard me. Right? Just, please, Lord, listen. That's all I got. David says, please, Lord, listen. And so we moderns would think, oh, he must not think God is listening. That's why he's asking. Oh, keep reading. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you, my King and my God, do I pray. 
O Lord, in the morning You hear my voice. So he's not questioning whether or not God hears him. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So David is starting by earnestly pleading with God to hear his prayer. And then what does he start doing? He starts, as it were, reminding himself and confessing to the Lord what kind of God he prays to. This is, I submit to you, a very helpful thing for you to sing about and a very helpful way for you to pray. That when you are, it's, it, in other words, what does this psalm teach us? It's okay to plead with God, will you hear me? Are you listening? And then go to God's promises that tell you, yes, I am. And speak and confess those to yourself and to others. What is, what is I said, uh, I said the center of the psalm was verses 7 and 8. Why am I jumping there? Because this is where David's confidence is. This is where he gets the confidence to say, this is the God who hears me. He says, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, that's where he starts. And that's where you need to start when that's what's in question for you, Christian. That's where you need to begin when you judge, judging based on your circumstances, conclusion is God doesn't love me and God's not listening. Right? It confronts us quite a lot if we're honest. And so what we need in those moments is, I, I am going to approach my God, not because I'm worthy, but because He's the one who hears me, I know that from His Word, and because of His steadfast covenant love i will enter your house i will bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you lead me O lord in your righteousness we'll get there in a moment what i want to say for now is that david's hope is in the god who hears him and welcomes him in right because of your steadfast love I will enter your temple. David's hope, where he can root his hope, is that there is a God in heaven who hears him and who welcomes him in. All right? Now, I'm going to go ahead and take a stab at the big hairy elephant in the room. All of you heard it when we were reading through the text, and it bothered you. It bothered you a lot. So let's go to verse 5 now. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. This is a hard text. Some of the reasons why it's a hard text is because in many places, the American church has used slogans and sentimentality to catechize her children rather than the words and ways of God. We've been catechized by sentiments like love the sinner, hate the sin. Which is not in the Bible, but it's a common evangelical sentiment. It is not entirely wrong. Some of you are like sharpening pitchforks for me right now. It's not entirely wrong. Stick with me. I will come back to it. My point for now is that sentiments, if, if we are raised on a diet of sentimentality, Texts like this will be nearly impossible to understand. We won't preach it, and we surely won't ever sing it. Because we don't believe it. It's also a hard text, because as I never tire of saying, you are what you sing, in terms of your theology. 
That is your actual doctrine. I don't care, what, I don't care if you hold the Westminster Confession. I don't care if uh, there's a statement of faith that you really like, that you think reflects you. I don't care if you've got a, a, a confession that you wrote out, hand wrote yourself. What you sing is what you actually believe. And so that's what I've talked to you about before, that I think that one of the reasons why the American church struggles is because we've stopped singing the songs of Zion. We've stopped singing the Psalms. We have exchanged them for, in some cases, in some places, I don't think here, but, but in some cases and places, we've exchanged them for songs that remind us more of a version of God that we have designed and whose liturgies we've repeated. So let's talk a little bit about love the sin or hate the sin, yeah? First, I will start with why it's good. And why, in Christian circles, it works. Okay? So let me repeat that. I'm going to start with why it's good and why, in Christian circles, it works. The reason why the statement works in Christian circles is because that is exactly what God has done with you, Christian. Okay? He's loved the sinner and He's hated the sin. He's made a distinction between you and your sins. Jesus Christ on the cross, God, as it were, separated you from your sins, put your sins on Jesus, and then gave you His righteousness. Okay? So the reason why we can talk about this separation in Christian circles is because that is, in fact, what God has done with you in Christ. Amen? Good. But outside of the cross... The reality is that unbelievers are in every way radically tied up with their sin. There's no, well, that's what I did, but it's not really who I am. That's another worldly sentiment you will not find in the Bible. Apart from Christ, you are very much what you do. It's why in the Psalms, wicked men are called wicked men, not men who occasionally struggle with bouts of wickedness. In Revelation, it is sinners who fall under the judgment of God, not particular sins. It is liars and fornicators and God-haters who are judged, not their sins isolated from their selves. So if we do want God to distinguish between sinner and sin, and by the way, you do want that, there's only one place where God has made that distinction. It is in the cross of Christ. If you want sin separated from sinner, you must come to Christ. The second reason why this is troubling. Thanks, y'all. The second reason why this is troubling is that, I mean, why the text troubles us. Why Psalm 5, uh, uh, verse 5, makes us struggle a bit. Jesus told us to love our enemies, right? It's the immediate text that comes to mind when you're looking at this. You're like, well, wait a minute. I thought, I thought Jesus said love your enemies. Does Jesus say that? Yes, he does. Why don't we go over there? That's Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43, I believe. Yeah. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son, as you in, rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, we are commanded here to love our enemies. We are given a reason why. Did you hear hear it? The reason why we are to love our enemies is so that we will be like God. Verse 45. Okay? Go to verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Alright. So, I'm to love my enemies so that I can be more like my Father in heaven. How does my Father in heaven love His enemies? So glad you asked. He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. Oh. That's how God loves His enemies. He gives them sunlight. Cool. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. How does God love His enemies? He gives them rain. I know rain in, in our day, like it's, it tends to be a negative metaphor, like, like uh, storm clouds, sadness. In the ancient world, if you're a farmer, rain, good thing. Okay? So, so those are, that's not a positive metaphor and a negative metaphor. It's two positive metaphors. He sends His Son in the sky, blessing, warmth, heat, and then He sends rain, and He does that for just and unjust, for righteous and unrighteous, for wicked and, and for His children. So, love like that. That's the model. Be like your Father in heaven. You guys see where I'm getting this from. I don't want to lose you. Okay? So, notice what kind of love God gives to the wicked. It's what we call common grace. Sunshine, health, food, to believers and unbelievers. We are told to be like God in this respect. So, it is not, the text is not saying that God loves unbelievers redemptively, but He does give to them and to us many blessings. God loves sinners redemptively in Christ. And with regard to that redemption, those who are outside of Christ and refuse Christ and disregard and ignore Christ are under God's wrath and, dare I say it, His hatred. And so when Jesus says, don't hate your enemies, love them and pray for those who persecute you, what does that love look like? It looks like, broadly speaking, helping your enemy whenever he has a need. Okay? When he needs food, needs water, material needs. That's the same thing that our God in heaven does every day for people who reject Him. He gives them sunlight and bread and air and music, books and so on. The Apostle Paul understood this too. If you'll go over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Paul talking about the responsibilities of Christians. uh, uh, Verses 20 and 21. Uh, let's, Let's back it up to 19 actually. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. There it is. Okay? Common grace, love of God. Love your enemies. Here's Paul. If you see your enemies, here's how you love them. And it sounds oddly the same. Right? For, we get more though from Paul, For by so doing, you will heap 
burning coals on his head. That sounds a little less nursery friendly. Okay? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we are to overcome evil. And there's this burning coal situation going on. Do you see? God will judge the world on the last day. At the end of all things, those who are in Christ are counted righteous. Those who are not will perish in their sins, bearing the weight of their sin to hell. And so, we are called, as it were, if I can put it this way, to outwit the evil of our enemies with love by meeting all their needs. And this will be like putting burning coals on their head. Do you get it? Either, either it's going to so annoy them to the point that they feel crushed by your unreasonable kindness, or on the last day, it will be part of the crushing judgment of God. The further revelation that they had of His kindness to you given to them, and they still resisted and refused. So we have to recognize that God calls us to love our neighbors, yes, And He does mean all of them, yes. And that means, for example, that we long for justice in our land. I'm going to go somewhere with this. We have to recognize that when God calls us to love our neighbors, He means all of them. So we long for justice in our land. That will often sound unloving or at least uh, uh, inconvenient to unjust men, right? So in verse, uh, in verse 10, sorry to go back to, the, to Psalm 5. In verse 10, Psalm 5, David says, Make them, that is the wicked, bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Well, that doesn't sound very neighborly. That doesn't sound very nice. Well, that depends. Does it sound loving to the person they've sinned against? Probably. Probably. So what I'm trying to say, part of loving your neighbor is hoping and praying that God would bring about a more just society for your neighbor to live in. A just society where evil men watch their evil plans blow up in their evil faces. That's what David is saying. Is that not part of neighbor love? Do you see? I want my neighbor... I want all of you, I want my daughter to live in a city where murderers and rapists and criminals meet a just end. And where all other citizens who might be tempted to do such things are absolutely terrified to think about it. Is that not loving my neighbor? That I want him to live in such a place. Okay? So we, sometimes I think we've been catechized to say uh, that that. God's love is just, we flatten it. It's just all the same, all the time, all the people, all the places. Now, we don't want to fall into the other ditch where we're like, let's do a 12-week series on the hatred of God. <laughs> no. <laughs> the re- wh- and you might say, well, why? Like, are you not up to that task, Pastor Brian? Well, no, because the Bible has a lot less to say about that than it does about the love of God. And so we want to strike the balance where the Bible does. The Bible has a lot more to say about the love of God. So that's what you're going to hear on our lips most of all. But that doesn't mean we ignore things like Psalm 5. 
So in that sense, if we spend more time talking about God's love than the hatred here in Psalm 5, in that sense, we're really just imitating the Scriptures. But at the same time, if we're honest, think about this. You remember the mockers who mock back in Psalm 1, right? The sitting in the seat of mockers and, and all that. If you want to know what draws a lot of mockery in the world against the church, it's Christians who ignore what God has said to them in their own book. Okay? So here, here we are with a text that's tough. And so we shouldn't shy away from that. We should, uh, quite the opposite, sort of be oriented to be like, all right, how do we confess this? So if there is such a thing as the hatred of God, and the Bible seems to say there is, I'm going to make a lofty assumption and take for granted that you don't want to be on the receiving end of it. So let's take a look at a text to see how we cannot be counted among the God-haters and the God-hated. Okay, Verse 4, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Evil may not dwell with you. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. So this is the most central identifying factor is that it is devoid of what God delights in. Look at the verse again. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The most central identifying factor of wickedness is it takes the things God has said are evil and it makes them a subject of delight. Now there are two sins that get called out in particular here. Verses 5 and 6, I believe. Yeah, well... Three, actually. So the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all the evildoers. So boastfulness. You destroy those who speak lies. So lying. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful. So lying and, and bloodthirsty murderousness are, are tied together. So let's start with, with boasting and lying. Okay? Why is boasting evil? Because it is an attempt, either in private or in public, to be God. Right? Everyone look at me and worship me. Boasting. Boasting is not recognizing. Um, by the way, yeah, sorry. Let's, for, just for a moment, let me say what boasting is not. It is not boasting just to recognize when you're right about something, when you're strong, when God has given you gifts, when God has given you talents. Okay? God always wants us to be humbled and humble before Him and before men. So that doesn't mean we lie about the ways that God has blessed us. So there is, there is a kind of humility that God commands, but, but not at the exclusion of how He's blessed us. So much so that Paul was able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? He was able to recognize God had given him some gifts that were worthy of imitation in the churches. And so he's saying, you know, so observe those best you can and imitate them. Well, the point I'm trying to get at is that I do think there's a kind of self-deprecation that is, that is very nearly lying. And it's interesting that lying comes right after boasting. So the thought that this one popped into my head, but I mean, you guys remember my our, our good friends, the Kingmas. If, if I said to, to Joe Kingma, the Kingmas were here for a number of years. Joe was an outstanding concert pianist, and now he's in Florida uh, continuing to, to be a professor of the piano. Um, so if I was talking to Joe and I said, you know, Joe, you're really good at playing the piano. And if he said, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm all right. I'm really not that good, right? And if he did that, let's be honest. I don't think we would say, you know, that Joe is such a humble guy. <laughs> We'd probably say, why is he lying? 
<laughs> Maybe he should talk to a counselor. Like, this is really not good, the way he sees his own gifts and ability. Like, there's a, there's a really big imbalance here. He'd probably say something like, I worked hard to get here. Hours and hours of practice, man. And I'm thankful that God allows me to feed my family doing what I love. He'd probably say something like that. Is that boasting? No. It's a recognition of the gifts that God has given him and that he's glad that he can use them. Boasting is asserting yourself, usually to mask some kind of insecurity in you, because you want the attention of others in order to validate you. You want to be worshipped. right? Boasting is, I'm great, so everybody has to look at me. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm going to stand up on a stage and be so great and so beautiful and so compelling that you just won't be able to keep your eyes off me. Boasting. That's what's at the root of it. It is a common temptation for pastors, except for the beautiful bit. That's not a common temptation for pastors. But the other aspects of being on the stage and getting the attention, certainly that's a temptation there. Entertainers, I think, would be vulnerable to that. Politicians, I think, would be very vulnerable to that. That kind of makes me feel really slimy that I just said pastors, entertainers, politicians in a list. But God says then, on the day when we come to stand before Him, we have to face him. Look at what he says. It's really quite remarkable. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. They've been pleading for everybody else's eyes to stand in front of them and say, look at me. And on the last day, they will not be able to bear the gaze of God. All of life has been about standing in front of people to get their attention. But the attention of God is the one thing that the person rejecting God does not want. So this is why we have to care about sins like that. Because God takes them very seriously. This is why I frequently remind us, church, fun things that we all like to remember, like, here's one, and you, you're not going to see this when, where I'm getting this from, but just walk with me for a second. That in terms of thankfulness, one thing we should be thankful to God for, in fact, we gathered to thank God for it, was the overturning of Roe v. Wade, Right? We, we, we thank God for that. And especially like, I didn't see that coming. I don't think I, I, I dare say, I don't know, I even had the faith to pray for that. And God has blessed us in a way we did not expect. And you should probably be thankful to God for uh, Donald Trump and for his Supreme Court picks that God very well might use to resurrect some justice in the land. You should also be able to acknowledge that his unrepentant public boasting and lusting puts him under the hatred of God. It's a both and. Well, God used him to... Yes, he did. And also used Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Herod to accomplish good purposes for the sake of his people. Well, Pastor Brian, you're really imbalanced. What about Joe Biden? Yeah, verse 6 has some things to say about liars and those who spill innocent blood. Don't worry, we'll get to him. God says in verse 9, verse 9, for there is no truth in their mouths, their inmost self is destruction. Their inmost self is destruction. Their inmost self blows stuff up. Verse 9 says that when you're dealing with a liar, you are dealing with someone whose inmost self destroys. They are twisting the truth. They end up twisting themselves. They end up twisting their souls. And they will begin to destroy everything in their path. Liars 
who lie, we might say like chronically or a lot and and really earn the title of liar, will destroy marriages, they will destroy families, they will destroy childhoods, they will destroy churches, they will destroy entire economies and governments and nations. I told you I was going to get to Biden. So how do we find deliverance? How do we find deliverance? In a world full of boasters and liars and bloodthirsty men. David in the psalm, I think it's fair to say, is terrified. He's terrified. Commentators kind of wonder if, if this is one of the ones that he wrote while, uh, while fleeing from Saul. Could have been. We don't, we don't know for sure. It doesn't say. Uh, what is interesting is that God meant this to be one that his people sing. You know, you, you might be able to argue that there were different ones that maybe were used for different purposes. I think all of them were for singing. This one unavoidably is for singing, which makes that verse 5, you hate all evildoers, even the more potent. How do I know it's especially for singing? Because it starts out, to the choir master. Who do you suppose it's for? I'm going to say for the whole choir. And for the flutes. You ever tried to sing and play the flute at the same time? Sounds pretty hard. You're going to need at least two for this one. So God gives deliverance in the psalm as well. He wants His people singing this, this progress from hear me, O Lord, I'll come into your temple, I'll come into your sanctuary, and that's where I'm going to find my, my favor and safety. In a world full of boasters, liars, and bloodthirsty men, we either follow and imitate them or we follow after the Lord. That begins with worship. Look at what David says in verse 7. This is the center, the heart of a psalm. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple. David says that what will shape him, not the liars, not the bloodthirsty men, not the wicked men, what will shape him is fellowship and worship with God. He seeks fellowship with God in his house. And in his house means necessarily also with God's people. This is a major aspect, thank you, of what conforms us to Christ is being with God's people. Now, some people offer an objection here. They say, Rhodes, that sounds a little too closely like you're trying to make God's temple, God's house into like a church building. Uh, just so you know, the New Testament calls God's people the temple now. It's not about a temple in Jerusalem. I would say, correct. If God's people are the temple now, each of us, as Peter says, being living stones in it, then you are still going to the house of God when you are joining together in public worship. Are you not? So we find deliverance then in what God has given us, in the fellowship of His people, and as we're going to find out at the end of the psalm, in following Him. Let's see. Sorry, I lost my spot. Verse 11. Oh, no, sorry, verse 8. That's where I wanted to go. There we go. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. So he comes into the sanctuary and he says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Why? Because of my enemies. Because of my enemies. Lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So hear what's being said there. My, my enemies and then all the temptations that come with them and the threats to my life and my spirit put before me a crooked way. What I need is a straight way that I can trust. In your righteousness, not mine, but in the ways that I need to go because of my enemies. One of my favorite things about Psalm 5, again, I told you before, is how well it has served wounded women, especially those who have been victims of adultery or abandonment. Apparently, a song about God's justice against liars has a lot to say to them. The words of Psalm 5 have been no 
small comfort to them. And so I simply offer that to you pastorally. David here says, lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Why? Because the enemies of God, listen, the enemies of God make, tend to make sins against God look harmless if you don't know better. This is especially a temptation for a lot of younger people, if I can address you just for a moment. The temptation that often confronts you if you are, let's just say, I don't know, uh, 13 to 25. Temptation that uniquely confronts you in a season that you're in in life is to get as close as possible to the sin as you possibly can without crossing the line. Because then it'll still look harmless, but you still have the pull, and that's why you are not a God who delights in wickedness, verse 4, is so important. You are dealing with frightfully weighty things in your life when you deal with sin and temptation. And when you face warnings in Scripture that warn you against these things, the, another temptation associated is to perhaps overqualify it. Like, oh, that's a warning, but you know, I'll be fine because Jesus and stuff, and it'll be okay. And, and I, I just want to say, before you start qualifying God's Word, and I, I'll, bet, I'll bet when you heard you know, the, the, the you hate evildoers, the very first thing, let's hit that with about seven qualifications so it doesn't sound like what we think it sounds like. I would just say, rather than hit all the qualifications, maybe just hear the warning. Hear the warning about the seriousness of sin. David's ultimate hope and defense. Oh my, I did not know what time it was. That's all right. David's hope and defense is at the end of the Psalms. So let's go there as I wrap up. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. So refuge is what David's been looking for the whole psalm. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Wrap it up, preach. I'll deal with you later. Uh-huh. My enemies surround me. <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy. Oh, forgive me, forgive me. All right, let's try that again. We got this one? Good. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So that the David's solution to all the problems he's facing in this psalm is to take refuge in the God who speaks truthfully, right? Who never boasts. Think about that. Our God has a whole book of 150 songs all saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. Don't ever stop praising me. And our God doesn't boast because that's exactly what we need to be doing for our own good. Uh, and so, uh, and so to, to, to be in the shadow of a God who never boasts, but is always demanding praise and worship, to be in the shadow of a God who never lies and invites us to sing for joy. Let them ever sing for joy. So what is it? Three things that verses 11 and 12 tell you that you need to do in this world and all the temptation that surrounds you. Number one is take refuge in your God. That means pray to him. That means sing to him. But that means most especially this, you cover him with favor as with a shield. 
The, the Hebrew word for shield there is the kind of shield, this is so cool. It's the kind of shield, don't think like the, the little one that just covers kind of this bit here. It's a shield that starts at your head and goes to your toes and has teeth on the outside of it. So that if your enemy comes running at you and you put the shield up, he's done for. How cool is that? You surround them with favor as with a shield that covers and protects them. The covering and shield that God has given to you, dear saints, is the very blood of Jesus that continually speaks words of forgiveness over you so that no voice of an enemy or accuser can actually ring in your ears for very long because you're surrounded by the shouts of deliverance that say you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. It's where your hope and it's where your strength is. And so I leave you with a psalm that has within it a difficult text. And I tell you that the psalm does put up the the battle lines, as it were. To tell you what God does with those who determine to be on the other side, opposed to him. And what the call that goes out to you is today is that if you want to be on God's side, that's where Jesus will put you. That's what Jesus has done. He is the fulfillment of Genesis 3, the promise there, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, serpent. That's really good news. That's God saying, I'm going, Christian, I'm going to make you Satan's enemy, not on Satan's team. I'm going to deliver you out of enmity with me, God, and put you into right covenant relationship with me by the blood of my son, which covers you like a shield from all the angry accusations of your enemy. Take refuge here, dear saints, and find it to be your only comfort and hope in life and death. In Jesus' name, amen.